would you, I apologize for making you stand again. Would you remain standing for the reading of the word? I want to turn your attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 30. And I will be mindful of the time. 1 Samuel chapter number 30. And again, forgive me as I read uh, quite a few verses from chapter 30. This is the story of David in his mighty men, 600, 600 mighty men of valor. They have been running from the murderous threats of King Saul for some time now. They've been escaping death threats and assassination attempts. And they had come at this kind of juncture in time. They've run so far to be safe, they seemingly aligned themselves with the Philistines. If you remember the Philistines, that Goliath was a Philistine that David had killed, that you would see just a few chapters prior. But at this juncture, he had aligned himself and the 600 men, because Israel was not a safe place for them to be with the enemy, with the Philistines. And the Philistines... The Philistine king gifted David and his mighty men a city called Ziklag. Ziklag. So this is the setting. And at one point, the Philistine king asked, forced, requested that David and his men go and fight with them. This worried David because he knew that most likely they would be doing battle with the armies of Israel. David at that time agreed to go with the Philistines and they left north towards a city called Aphek. Aphek. And as they were headed north, they were on their way. Think about this. The Bible tells us, and we're going to read it in just a moment, that an enemy called the Amalekites snuck in from the south. As they were leaving to the north, they were sneaking in to the south. And their unprotected homes and families were just vulnerable for the attacks of the Amalekites. We will read in just a few moments that the Amalekites pillaged the city of Ziklag, took captive their families, their wives, their children, their possessions, and David and his men didn't even know about it because they were off to war. This is the setting of what we're going to read today. 1 Samuel chapter number 30. And again, forgive me as I read more verses than normal. Now what had happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. This is verse number 4. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more, think about it, power to weep. 
And David's two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail, had also been taken captive. Now, David, verse number 6, was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar, the, the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring me, bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and his 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Bezer, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, and he and 400 men for 200 stayed back who were so weary that they could not cross the brook. Here's my key text this morning. Verse number 11. Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate and they let him drink water and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins and when he had eaten for his strength come back to him and his strength came back to him for he had not eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights then David said to him to whom do you belong and where are you from and he said I am a young man from Egypt a servant of the Amalekite and my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. Watch this, verse 14. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites, the territory that belongs to Judah, also of the southern area of Caleb. Watch this. And thirdly, we burned the city of Ziklag with fire. We, we burned it. And David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? So he said, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. Two more verses, verse number 18, skipping down. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. This, of course, after the attack. And David rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Amen. Clap your hands one more time to the Lord as you are seated this morning. We welcome all of our guests, all of our members and attenders. Thank you for being here. Most messages that I've heard preached from this text have to deal with taking back what the enemy has taken from us. In 1 Samuel, I've already given you the background, the context. I want to come at this text from a totally different angle and, again, talk to you from the topic of the man in your field. I necessarily, when I look at this text, don't think the highlight is, is necessarily gaining back what the enemy had taken. But I think the highlight is so easily skipped over when we read about David and his mighty men encountering a man in the field. In 1992, an American animated classic by Walt Disney 
featured a character by the name of Aladdin. Aladdin is a street urchin who lives in the bustling metropolis of Agrabah in the Middle East, a large, busy town, and he is accompanied by his faithful monkey friend, Abu. If you've watched the movie, you know that Aladdin doesn't have a real education. He's poor, and he has to steal in order to survive. At one point in the movie, he's thrown into the mud by a passing prince on a stallion who would later hurl the insult, you were born a street rat, you will die a street rat. It becomes evident that Aladdin's identity then is a reflection of all he's ever known, but also of how he's seen by everyone else. In the One Jump Ahead reprise song, Aladdin is pictured uh, alone in his home overlooking the city of Agrabah, and in solitude, he sings these lyrics. Riff-raff, street rat, I don't buy that. If only they'd look closer. Some of y'all are singing it in your heads right now. If only they'd look closer, would they see a poor boy? No siree. They'd find out there's so much more to me. Let me read a few lines together and omit some. If only they'd look closer, they'd find out there's so much more to me. If only they'd look closer, they'd find out there's so much more to me. There was a plea, if you will, for anyone who would simply look beyond what could be seen on the outside in hopes of discovering the good things that were on the inside. And if I could preach to you for just a few moments, I believe, I believe that there is a world full of people crying out in desperation in our day for the church to look beyond what is on the outside and start looking and reaching for what's on the inside. And I believe that if we would listen, that our spiritual ears would ring with the cries of the desperate and the hurting and the lonely. And we could, if we could continue to look past outside struggles and start seeing the inside potential. In the classic American literature piece, To Kill a Mockingbird, there is captured in, in one moment during a criminal trial where the judge addresses the courtroom, and he says, and I quote, people generally see what they look for. People generally see what they look for. John Laubach said similarly, and I quote, what we see depends on what we look for. What we see depends on what we look for. Before I get into the overall body of my text and my message here today, I just want to let you know that I believe the church 
does have a problem that needs to be addressed. And I think if we could address it, we would unlock the key to great, great, great revival. And that problem is this, that so many times we can be guilty of when we look at somebody, we stop looking at the outside of them, meaning we stop at their problem, we stop at their downfalls and pitfalls, and we fail to continue to look in the potential of what they could be. And if the church could ever keep on looking past what they see initially, I believe God would reveal the potential and the great things that is inside of every individual, you and I included. David and his 600 mighty men have gone, have, have now been on the run from King Saul of Israel. Their lives threatened multiple times, hiding in cities, abandoned fortresses in the wilderness, and even caves, desperately trying to avoid the murderous intentions of Saul. All of this, by the way, sparked not because the prophet Samuel had anointed David as king earlier. Saul was motivated to kill David because of a simple chant. You see, before Saul had come to hate David, Saul loved David. David was a gift from God to not only Saul, but also to Israel. He was a warrior. He was, he was loyal. Saul did not hate David because he was anointed the next king. Saul was motivated to kill David because at the return of one particular battle, as David and Saul rode back into Israel together, there was a chant from the people of Israel which declared, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. It was at that moment that Saul was blind now to the gift that God had given him in David. And instead of celebrating David's victory and his loyalty to Israel, he looked at David now with eyes of envy. For King Saul, the slow fade had already begun as he began seeing God's kingdom as his kingdom. As Saul began to see God's glory as his glory. This obsession led Saul to a tormented mind. He became fixated with killing David. And a king who was once humble and unassuming, selected by God himself, now began to see the world differently. Now the eyes of King Saul began to see God's kingdom as a means to satisfy his own lust for glory. In honor. And so the scene is set, and David and his mighty men have been gifted the city of Ziklag by the Philistines, as I've previously told you about. Ziklag becomes their home, and David and his men and their families experience great success and blessing. But all of this turns around while David and his 600 men deploy off to the north to Aphek to do war with the Philistines. And as their journey, and during their journey to the north, as I told you, an enemy would, would later creep into Ziklag from the south and unarmed and unprotected. Their wives, their estates, their wealth, their children are taken captive by the Amalekites. Unknown and ignorant to the pillaging of their homes and their families, David and his men are off to battle. Later, the Philistine army would tell them that you can go back home. We don't need you. We don't want to fight alongside of you. But at this moment, David and his men are ignorant to the fact that their homes and their families 
have been pillaged, and they're sent back home to Ziklag, no doubt excited to greet their wives, ecstatic to see their children. The morale is high at this point at the thought of walking into the comfort of their own homes again. And after a 50-mile-long journey south back to Ziklag, their hearts are gripped with utter terror at the sight of the plumes of smoke rising from their city. Can you imagine with me this morning the horror that they must have experienced finding their homes burned and their possessions gone and their families missing? It's in this moment of horror and confusion that the emotions of these mighty men begin to destabilize. And in a moment of anger and fear, they turn their attention to their leader, who they were once loyal to, now with the intentions of stoning him. And it's in this epic moment that an exceptional standard is set when you read from your text. But David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. How many know with me, if I can just take a pause one moment, that there are times when all hell has broke loose in your life and it doesn't seem like help is coming from anywhere, you don't feel encouraged, you feel downtrodden, and that there's simply sometimes in your life when you have got to encourage yourself in the Lord. The preacher won't do it, sometimes your husband won't do it, your wife won't do it, but you simply have to encourage yourself in the Lord. Amid, amid David encouraging himself in the Lord, there's something I want to highlight from our text. He turns to Abiathar, the priest, and demands he bring him the ephod. The ephod was part of a priestly garment worn while performing all kinds of priest, priestly functions, mainly the discerning of the will of God. It represented prayer. The ephod represented interceding. And, and hear me this morning, when David had two options, he could have reached for a sword. Instead, he reached for an ephod. Though he was a warrior, no doubt he was tempted to reach for the sword. But deep down inside, he knew that he would be no better than Saul, who would exchange the will of God for his own human desire. Can you imagine feeling that pain and that loss and that grief and being a man of war? David was a soldier. Forget all the pictures that you've seen that have him depicted as some kind of, you know, uh, sissified kind of character playing a heart. David was a warrior. David was a soldier, and he knew how to soldier. David knew how to kill. He knew the art of war. And could you imagine him being with his 600 mighty men of valor and in that moment of pain and, and, and heartache, seeing their city burn with fire and their families gone and their friends gone and, 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 their, and their whole estates gone, that the initial reaction would be for David to grab his sword and say, let's go. Let's go. Because this is what we do. We soldier. This is what we do. We kill. This is what we do. We take back. This is what we do. It's all David had ever known. David was skilled at being a soldier. He knew how to soldier. It was, it was his talent. It was his calling, if you will, at that moment. And at this moment in time, with all the pain, all the heartache, you got to capture this. That's why I'm, I'm trying to shine so much light on it. David says, I'm not going to reach for the sword. Instead, bring me the ephod. 
Bring me the ephod. What do you mean, David? Now, hey, hey, they got our family. They got our wives, our sons, our daughters, everything that we own. What do you mean, bring me the ephod? Bring me the ephod because I need to seek the will of God above my own will. I need to seek the purpose of God above my own purpose. We see that just a few chapters earlier when faced with another critical decision, David made a grave mistake when he said, give me the sword of Goliath. He would come to later regret that decision, and David had learned that, listen, sometimes in life, watch, I've got to let go of everything that I know to do and just simply reach for the presence of God. Sometimes I've got to let go of my way, and I've got to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And it's in this moment that David could have reached for a sword, but he reached for an ephod. I want to ask you a very important question as I put a pause in this message today. What are you reaching for in times of trouble or distress? I want to invade your privacy as your pastor for just a few moments and ask you what do you reach for in the times of trouble or sadness or hurt. We live in a world that, that will tend to reach for a bottle or, or tend to reach for a pack of cigarettes or tend to reach for love in the wrong places. And I believe we live in a society that is plagued with reaching in the wrong places. And if we could convince ourselves and others that the place that we need to reach for is the presence of God, I want to ask you, where are you reaching today? Because the reward is in the reach. Can I take a moment and put a pause again and fast forward for just a second to the New Testament? There was a woman with an issue of blood that she had for 12 long years. She had reached to family. She had reached to friends. The text tells us that she had reached with all her finances and invested it in physicians trying to find an answer to her problem. And it was only till she hit rock bottom that she realized, I've got to be reaching for Jesus. I've got to reach for Jesus. And if I will let go of everything else and reach for the hem of his garment, the reward is in the reach. What are you reaching for? Jesus told another man who had a lame hand, and he told the man simply this, stretch forth your hand. Reach for me. My God. I could just preach from this one topic today. Some of y'all are in the position where this word would land right in the center of your heart. You need to reach for the power in the presence of God. Stop trying to reach in other wrong places. Stop trying to reach out to family and friends and, and lovers and alcohol and all these things and start reaching for the hymn of the robe of Jesus. Start reaching for the presence of God. David didn't reach for the sword. As humans, sometimes our greatest temptation can be to reach for the things that we think we know or the things that we do best, the things of the, that are familiar to us. But I just want to challenge you today. Sometimes you will be put in situations where you just can't reach for the things that you do well. You can't reach for the things that are familiar. Sometimes the only thing that will do, and sometimes God will put you in the position so that you will learn the only way out of this, son, daughter, 
is to reach for me. You've been, a, you've, been a, you've been a soldier. You're good at being a soldier. You've been a warrior and a mighty man of valor. You are skilled and anointed and gifted in that area. But David, listen to me. This won't get you out of that. You've got to reach for me. And this is a critical moment. This is a critical. Please don't miss this because ev- I'm almost done. Everything that I'm saying from this point out hinges on this one fact, that when David could have chosen the sword, he chose the ephod. I want to show you what I believe is the results of that decision because when he chose the ephod, something had to shift in the heart and the mind of David. Where he had to, think about this, where he had to let go of vengeance and exchange it for something else. I want to, sh- I want to show you this. I want to show you this. First Samuel chapter 30 and verse 13. We see that After inquiring, I'm going to read this in one second, but after inquiring of the Lord with the ephod, God does indeed tell David to pursue the enemy. He does. Yet he gives no instruction or direction for them to travel. And so off go David and his mighty men, already weary from battle, emotionally disturbed, dealing with feelings of loss and grief and fear, and while in the middle of their wandering, while in the middle of their mess, they encounter a man in a field. They encounter a man in the field. 1 Samuel 30, verse 13, And David says to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, a servant of the Amalekite. Let me say it another way. A servant of your enemy. And my master has left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. Isn't that like the world, by the way? That as soon as you have nothing to offer, it leaves you high and dry. Watch what this man says. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah and in the area of Caleb. And we, we burned Ziklag with fire. I want to pause right there and say, could it be that if David would have chosen the sword, that as soon as that man in the field had said, yep, And we were the ones that invaded Ziklag. I don't know if you heard about that, but we burned Ziklag to the ground. We stole their families, their their sons, their daughters. Could it be that if David would have grabbed the sword, that he would have immediately thrust it through that man? And I can only imagine the other 400 men standing there. What? You were with them when they took our family, our sons, and our daughters? David, we need to kill this man. We need to destroy this man for his sins. He ought to die. And I would think that just perhaps if David would have grabbed the sword, he would have had the wrong mind. But because David, a few verses earlier, grabbed a hold of the ephod, he had the will of God. What are you trying to say? He started seeing things in a different perspective. <sighs> when you look through the eyes of a king like Saul, he sees things differently. David, because he got a hold of the ephod, was able to look through the eyes of the king. And he seen beyond the offense. 
he's seen beyond the sin. And here's what he says after this man confesses that they burned Ziklag with fire. David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? Let me say it another way. Can you help us? Can you help us? And here's what he said. Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me, that's the first thing, or deliver me into the hand of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. I believe the church exercises two negative options when we encounter people like this man. You ready for it? People that offend us, people that are laden with sin and messed up, the church has two options sometimes that we exercise. Option number one, we kill them. Not physically. We kill them with our words. We kill them with our actions. We kill them with our deeds, with our behaviors. But here's the other thing that we do. Sometimes the church is guilty of delivering them back to the enemy. You know why? Because discipleship is hard work. Soul winning's hard work. When you're trying to deal with people that are trying, you're trying to get them to live for God and get better in their relationship with God, and they have major trip-ups and hang-ups, and they're failing, and they're stumbling, here's the temptation. Just let them go back to where they came from. They obviously don't want to live for God. They obviously, they, they would rather pursue their sin and their struggle than their relationship with God. And it can be so easy to let them go back. And this man cries out to David, yes, I'm guilty. Yes, I was there that day. Yes, I have an offense against you. But don't kill me and don't deliver me back to the enemy. And if you will commit to not killing me or deliver me back to the enemy, I will do whatever I can to help you. Said, Pastor, what are you talking about? I am tending to believe more and more that the greatest revival is on the cusp of a true life church, but I think it's going to come through unexpected means. I think there's people that are here today and people that are going to roll through our doors where the temptation will be to kill them with our words or our actions or to deliver them back into the hands of the enemy. But if we could for one moment not see through the eyes like King Saul, but see through the eyes of the king, we could look beyond their struggles and we could look beyond their offenses and we could look beyond the nastiness of their sin and pull something greater. I want to ask you today about the man in your field. Who is the man in your field? Who is the lady in your field? Who are they? Who is the man or the lady in our field here this morning? It was a servant of the enemy, which was the key to the revival in Ziklag. I got to say it another way. It was a servant of Satan that was the key to the revival that would eventually happen in Ziklag. 
I, I just, just forgive me for just one moment. Some of y'all think I'm crazy. I don't think our revival is going to come through a preacher, a licensed minister that gets up looking all savvy like I am here this morning. I think the key to our revival is with a servant of Satan. And my job is to find those that are serving the world and look beyond their sin and their ugliness and the shame and the guilt and reach for something greater to see the potential that God has put inside of every person. Lift your hands for just one moment and worship the Lord. I want you to know as you're worshiping God, who's in your field? Who's the man or the lady in your field that seems so hard to reach, that seems impossible to love? Servant of the enemy was the key to revival. Please hear me today, but only when David and his men chose to minister instead of murder. Only when David and his men overlooked the man's offenses against his own family and friends, children. The catalyst to revival here at True Life Church, I'm declaring it to you. Listen to me. It's some of the weakest people you know. It's some of the most messed up people that you know. And if we will look beyond that, I love the words of Aladdin. Forgive me for going back for just one second. If they would just look closer, would they see a poor boy? No. They'd find out there's so much more to me. But the problem was is everybody viewed Aladdin from the outside, and that's where they stopped. God help us. If when people come back to True Life Church or come into True Life Church, all we do is stop at their struggle and stop at their weakness and stop at their shortcomings, God help us. We would be a church, we will be a church that dies if that becomes our mentality. Saul, when he looked through his own eyes, he was restricted in his vision became about his kingdom instead of God's kingdom. But something happened in David's life, and I'm, I'm almost done, when he didn't reach for the sword, but he reached for the ephod. Could it be that in that moment of seeking the Lord, that David picked up the heart of God and the eyes of God and was able to see through the eyes of the king, past a man's tragic offenses and sin, and deep into his heart, that this man could be the catalyst to our revival. Please don't kill me. Please don't deliver me back into the hands of my enemy, and I'll help you. What did it take? It took looking not through the eyes of just a king, but looking through the eyes of the king. It's not just how we see each other. Listen to me today. It's also how you see yourself. How many of us struggle so badly because we stop looking when we see our struggle, our shortcoming, our offenses, and our sin? And the whole time is God saying, if you would just look with my eyes, you would see past that 
to the great potential that I put inside of you. I'm here to lift you up today. I'm here to encourage you to stop looking at the outside of yourself and start looking at the inside of yourself. Stop stopping at the weakness and start, keep going, keep looking to the potential. And also to extend that courtesy to somebody else. I want Sister Susie to take about three minutes. I want, you, I want her to tell you a little bit about her and her testimony. I was a child of Satan. I lived in Arizona, deep in the depths of addiction. I weighed less than 100 pounds. I had an abusive husband who was an addict who left us. And I saw no way out. But my life got worse. Maybe I'm going to die and all this suffering will be over. I had been beaten. I had been raped. I always carried a gun. I got pregnant from a rape. I drove myself to an abortion clinic, which I do not believe in. I refused medication because I felt I needed to feel the pain of what I was doing because it was so wrong. I had seizures. I had overdosed. But somehow I hung on. My family sent my kids and I plane tickets to come home for vacation. And they did an intervention and I went into treatment. And I found out there who God was. I was afraid at first to step through that doorway in my mind. It was a picture of a, of a patio door and I was afraid to walk through that door because I was afraid I was gonna fall down in this bottomless pit. But when I finally accepted that I wasn't capable of doing it myself, I walked through that doorway. And instead of falling into a pit, it was held up by thousands of arms. And I felt, okay, I got this. And I was the cheerleader for recovery. Wasn't long after that, I found out I was pregnant. And I was struggling. I said, what good does this have? I don't know what to do. And a friend of mine in treatment said, pray. So for the first time, I went to my room and I knelt on the floor, and I prayed. And I cried, and I said, God, what purpose does this have in my recovery? And I laid on my bed, and I saw faces coming out of my body. And when they came out, they turned into these grotesque things. And I was pinching myself because I didn't think it was real, but it hurt, so I knew it wasn't a dream. And when I got up, I went to the one person I trusted, and I said, you're not going to believe this, but I had this vision that there was demons were coming out of my body and talking 100 miles an hour. And I said, I know I passed withdrawal. And she looked at me and she said, Susie, it's done. You're gone. And at that exact moment, and I knew that I was going to be okay, I moved to Waukesha. And I had the baby. And before I looked at the baby, I looked up and I said, thank you, God because he gave me her as a gift of forgiveness, a sign of forgiveness, because I couldn't forgive myself for what I did. My husband, we got a call, he was dying, and he had been abandoned his children for many, many years. And when he was dying, instead of the sword, my children and I went to see him. They found him, they forgave him, Brittany hadn't talked to him in probably 15 years. Levi was a baby, and they got to show him the baby. And I brought him to God. He couldn't talk because he was intubated very close to death. But 
the tears were coming down his face, and he reached, I know he reached to God. So we left this man who had been horrible to us. We forgave him, and that's what we need to do. And now, today, my mission on this in this world is to reach as many people as I can because I'm not that person. But the things that I went through are what I need to, to talk to people about, to know that you're never alone and we're always here. The third step in Celebrate Recovery tells us to turn our will and our life over to the care of God. And when we do that, the harvest is there. And I just encourage everybody, don't give up on people. Don't give up on your kids. Don't give up on anybody because it's there. In Jesus' name. Susie now ministers to, no doubt, hundreds of people throughout the year and celebrate recovery. The people that many people would stop looking at the outside. Right there. Right at their struggle. I think God's trying to change the heart of who we are. I want to ask you a question today. Who's the person in your field?